the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Herenia Capital Advisors, a registered financial services provider, FSP number 47080. Herenia Capital Advisors is setting the new standard for stockbroking services. Herenia is by traders, for traders. Visit herenia.co.za to find out more. Welcome to episode 72 of Magic Markets. You've got me, the finance ghost. You've got Mohamed Nala from Canada. And we have Pietri from Herenia tonight, and you have gotten to know Pietri many times. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of other noises from Pietri tonight as well, because his power just went off. The dogs are inside. The uh, backup battery fan is uh, whirring really hard, trying to do its thing. So this is a very South African experience. Poor Mo, he immigrated to Canada, and he still has to run his life around load shedding. Uh, but anyway, Pietri, Mo, welcome. Always a pleasure, Ghost. I mean, uh, we do plan our lives around ESCOM and the load shedding schedules, uh, specifically because... A lot of our listeners and subscribers are down in South Africa. You down there, Ghost, as well as our guest tonight, Pietri. Pietri, welcome to Magic Markets. Thank you very much. Yeah, I don't know if we want to jump straight into it. I mean, I'll tell you what, what's on my mind, Pietri. I mean, regular listeners of the show know you. You're a familiar voice from Herenia. Uh, and we love to pick your brain with regards to some of the more kind of trade-orientated ideas. Uh, we spoke to you not so long ago around your community, your ethos. You've got a, a group going, so we're not going to rehash all of that. For listeners not familiar with Herenia, again, we urge you to go and look at some of the previous podcasts. Uh, but for this week, Pietri, what I want to get into is that these markets have been notoriously volatile. They've been very interesting, to say the least. Uh, so maybe just as a, as, as a place to kick off, you know, tell us what's happened over the last month since we've spoken to you, uh, and let's take it from there. Okay, what's happened? A lot has happened. We've, we've uh, almost started a new world war. The energy shortage crisis is, is really starting to bite. Uh, we're starting to see the words food crisis coming up a lot more, as that is a situation that is going to be, I think, not going away soon. I, I think next in May is planting season in the U.S., so we'll see how it goes on that side. You know, if we don't see a downward pressure on fertilizer prices, I don't think that we'll see a lot of planting happening in the U.S., which makes the sort of wheat shortage even more pronounced. We've got a situation of runaway inflation, right, or stagflation. Maybe not quite runaway inflation just yet. The Fed has um, sort of changed their posture a bit to be a bit more aggressive in terms of how they plan to deal with it, a.k.a. sort of expecting to see larger interest rate hikes rather than more. The market was kind of pricing in and you know earlier this year i said seven interest rate hikes no ways um, turns out well maybe ways right so anyway I, th I think that we might not necessarily see seven but we are definitely i think on track for for bigger than 25 basis points per hike and that could potentially be a bit of a speed wobble for the market the market is in a bit of a weird space where we have this extreme bearish sentiment which historically has been a very good 
buy signal, actually, yet the fundamental picture continues to deteriorate. So it's very difficult to call. Yeah, before I even let Ghost jump in here, I want to touch on that point because here in Canada, you know, we last week we had the Bank of Canada increasing interest rates by 50 basis points. I think if you counterbalance that, you had New Zealand still going by 25 and then you had the ECB that sounded remarkably dovish and they did nothing. And that's because they're actually saying that the growth risks are a lot more material than some of the inflation risks. And I think that's obviously tied to, you know, the fact that regionally the Eurozone is in a much more difficult place. Uh, but on your point of, of runaway inflation, you know, we, we saw something similar to this in some respects with regards to the lumber price last year, where you saw it pushing up significantly, uh, and then you saw it curl over and reverse very sharply. So yes, you're seeing it on shelves, but some commodities look as though they're kind of flatlining out, curling out on the top end. And I take the point that it's going to be a very different picture based on how quickly you can get those commodities on stream versus other commodities which might have a much longer life cycle. But maybe just give us your quick view on those divergences uh, that you're seeing in the market? Yeah, I, I remember the, the crazy rally in lumber prices. And earlier this year, I was quite bullish on lumber prices as well, sort of looking at uh, housing demand in the US versus deliveries, right? So there was more demand for new houses than what were being completed. Also, I was looking at housing starts versus completions, and there were more housing starts than completions. So there was a pickup in the, in the building of homes in the US. So that would be a bit of a tailwind to, to lumber prices. However, we've seen now recently, um, some of the more recent data that housing demand is actually starting to collapse a little bit in the US. Not collapse, but to, to taper back, right? So that might take some of the wind out of the lumber sales. And that starts to sort of put into question how strong this recovery is, right? I think, look, make no mistake. We are in a situation where we have some of the world's most powerful economies basically at war with each other. Uh, and monetary policy is one of those tools. I mean, if you look at what uh, China did, for example, not so long ago, if I'm not mistaken, they cut the reserve requirements. They're sort of easing monetary policy into this, right? I suppose to your point, Mo, where they're supportive of growth and they're trying to see, you know, they're trying to stimulate their economy to grow, while the rest of the Western world is kind of struggling with with inflation and, and the like. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, China has the opportunity to, for example, just through past the, the input cost uh, for the for the products and the services that they, you know, produce, particularly in the commodity space. You know, they make steel products, but the higher iron ore price they can just pass through to, to the end consumer. So they're really in a sort of very aggressive stimulate growth stance. Uh, while the U.S. is kind of stuck in the middle, like, you know, you don't necessarily want the economy to slow down, but you cannot afford to have inflation at a, at a space where it is. So it is a bit of a, a divergence of, of monetary policy. And I think that is a tactical move in a, in a sort of proxy conflict between the East and West, which, you know, I don't want to be too bearish, but I think it escalates, right? Yeah, so maybe if we take it out of the macro stuff, sorry, Mo, just for a moment. Uh, I, I read today that the cosmetics industry is actually taking serious pain from these supply chain issues. So it's just as well that we are a podcast and not YouTube sensations because we may not be able to afford to be beautiful in months to come. Uh, but genuinely, some of the input prices in cosmetics is causing serious trouble. I read that it's something like 20% of their margins uh, or, their, or to rather 20% increases in cost price. Now, if you can't pass that on to your customers then that's basically your whole margin out the door, right? You make nothing. So you have to be able to pass it on. And this is something that we see a lot in Magic Markets Premium. And Pietro, you're a subscriber. I hope you get a chance from time to time to look at some of the stuff we do there. But I do. Oh, good man, good man. You have to say that though, it would kick you off. No, I'm kidding. I like the unlock the stock stuff. It's really cool. Good. I'm glad to see that you're getting involved in that too. So 
Uh, a lot of what we see in premium is companies talking about price elasticity. I mean, suddenly that is now the buzzword. And in simple terms, that is nothing more than if we increase our prices, what will be the impact on our customer demand? Will they pay more or will they tell us to get lost? And right now, as a stock picker, that's kind of where the action is, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it depends on, on the time frame in which you're picking. At, at some point, inflation gets you know so bad that it starts creating a bit of demand destruction, which is that elasticity sort of concept you're talking about, where the price is just too high, I'd, I'd rather trade down to a different product uh, or completely stop using the product, right? So I think that there is a bit of a, a shock coming in that space, and it does make it hard to pick um, stocks. And I mean, I think last time we spoke a little bit about our managed portfolio and the, and the stocks that are in there, I have made zero changes to that portfolio constitution over the last month. You know, I, I do want to get a bit more into into uranium and that kind of stuff, but there's no real compelling reason to make any adjustments now. So I'm still in a very, very defensive stance. And I think individual stock picking is now, I suppose, you know, we've had the rise of passive. And I think now is the stock picking sort of active manager's chance to shine. But at the same time, the task of picking the right stocks has become a lot more difficult given the, the sort of macro environment. Yeah, I think that's music to our ears. I mean, just simply because of what we do in Magic Markets Premium, where we, we've been saying for, for some time that this is a stock picker's market, that it's going to be a lot harder to try and extract the winners from the losers. I, I want to come back at it with another macro. I know Ghost tried to shut down my macro discussion. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you where I go with this. So we, we've seen the yields on government bonds escalate materially. I mean, we've seen that on the US tenure. We've seen it on, on pretty much every country's tenure. This is a reversal of that global easy monetary policy. And I take your point that you mentioned earlier in that we might not see the same number of hikes, but we are definitely seeing those those larger hikes. H how much further do you think this goes? You know, you're, you're positioned defensively already. Surely policymakers are not going to want to hike themselves into the next recession. Uh, and, you know, I, I certainly think they started this behind the curve. And if you're starting to see inflation base effects come back into it, uh, at what stage do policymakers capitulate and take their foot off the rate hike gas, if you want to call it that? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer. I don't know. I suppose respond with a few sort of interesting factoids, if anything. Um, since World War II, something like 11 out of the 14 tightening cycles has been followed by a recession within sort of 12 to 24 months. Just by sort of pure statistics, a tightening cycle in this stage does lead to recession. There's almost no, well, I mean, there's a very high probability that that's the case, right? And particularly if you look at something like the 10-year yield, uh, slap a monthly chart on that. It's a nice trend line uh, that's been sort of coming down over decades, right? And for the first time since, the, I think, the 1980s, the 10-year yield is above the 200-month moving average. So from a technical perspective, that to me looks like a trend change, right? So we might be in for significantly higher yields. And, uh, you know, to, to highlight something else, we've seen a very, very aggressive selling of, of bonds, right? Which is obviously why these yields are going up so incredibly quickly. And that's pushed up the bond volatility index a huge amount. And there's generally a relatively tight correlation between uh, equity volatility and bond volatility which seems to have broken down a bit. So volatility in the bond market is considerably higher than what it is in the, in the sort of on the S&P 500, right? Or the, in the equity market. So at some point, something's got to give. Either we see a very sharp um, sort of, you know, flow back into bonds and yields come down and inflation very quickly comes under control, or central banks are going to be forced to sort of 
you know, put their foot on the gas and stop inflation, and that might do quite a bit of harm to, to equity markets. And that's kind of where I'm putting my money, actually. So interestingly enough, what I'm seeing when I read through a lot of these company announcements is you're seeing, as usual, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? So you've got the food inflation worries on one end, and on the other end, you know, we were researching Delta Airlines today for Magic Markets Premium this week, and they are having no issue at all putting pricing increases through to leisure travelers. So I suppose it's the old story, especially if you're investing in consumer businesses. If you're investing in stuff that's more luxurious or discretionary spending, companies that are super premium, it's okay, provided they can really have this loyal customer base, like Lululemon that we looked at, you know, people will still queue up for that stuff. And then at the low end, you're looking for retailers who are incredibly efficient you know they can pass on as many of these price increases as possible but maybe they can absorb some and cushion the impact on their consumers and compete on that basis you've got to be so careful buying anything in the middle that isn't necessarily efficient and isn't necessarily able to pass on lots of price increases maybe it's getting disrupted from e-commerce i mean this show is not about fmcg but it's just something i've definitely been noticing in what i've been reading you've got to be really careful buying businesses that are mediocre in this environment i think you need to stick to good stuff i, I don't know if you saw but well, i don't know how about lvmh uh they had sales growth of something like 35 percent or something like that over the last 12 months i was just thinking to myself when i saw that i was like this is literally that post-apocalyptic kind of Hunger Games, kind of, you know, what do you call it, dystopian kind of future. This is now, like, rich people are just absolutely no problems. Let's buy more luxury watches, let's buy more luxury goods, while the rest of the world is kind of... I mean, I don't know, guys, we have to talk about this as well. Climate change is, like, a real thing, hey? What's been happening, you know, in Durban, for example, it's, it gets a bit harder when it touches home. I mean, this is the first time since, I think, the 70s or something that this level of flooding has happened. So the world is getting really, really tougher. And unfortunately, those at the top are just getting further and further removed from the from the struggles of the everyday man, right? Is, isn't it a barbell strategy, though? Because, you know, in the one breath, we're saying the rich are resilient. We're saying LVMH is, is posting these record growth. So you almost want to buy the lower LSM exposed stocks because the guys in the middle get squashed lower and maybe buy down. Certainly in an inflationary environment, I think that's that's a theme. And then you want to go and buy the guys at the top because those are the guys that seem to be quite resilient. But I almost want to pick up on that and then leverage off a point that you brought in, Pietri, which is that we can't ignore climate change. I mean, what's happening in Durban is really horrifying. Uh, it's it's climate change. It's It's a whole bunch of factors that come in there. But at the same time, I know you've been a very big bull on energy stocks, on oil, you know, given what's happened in the war. How do you square those two views? Because, you know, there's a view that, yes, we have to transition slowly. And then there's also a view that says, actually, no, you can't support, you know, the big old fossil fuel players that if you're going to go green, go green today. We have no time to waste. Where do you stand on that? I say go green as soon as possible, but let's be realistic about what it's going to take to get there, right? The average solar panel that is manufactured today, or even the high quality ones, have a lifespan of around 20 years. If we want to make our 2040 carbon neutral um, target, every single solar panel on a roof somewhere today has to be replaced. I mean, how much mining are we doing for that? So we have to be honest with ourselves and say, solar energy is not the most efficient way for us to get energy. Right now, Coal and oil are still the most efficient ways. Well, uranium, considerably more efficient by like a landslide. But unfortunately, what we have is an ever-growing 
demand and need for energy, right? And if you look historically, every time a new source of energy was found, the old source of energy wasn't, you know, removed from the market. The new source of energy was just added on top. And then we, then you know, when we started using oil, then we started using natural gas. Oil demand didn't drop. Natural gas demand just came on top of that, right? So we have to be realistic about the time frame in which we can really do this. And I think the only way that we can really, really push uh, sort of for a 2040 zero emissions target is we have to go nuclear energy. There is no other way. I, I want to piggyback on that idea directly because I think it's something I've certainly been a big supporter of. Is I, I think nuclear is like this this baby that got thrown out with the bathwater. You're seeing that with regards to what Germany did. And now obviously they're trying to recommission some of their nuclear power plants. How do you play uranium? You know, I, I look at something like the Global X Uranium ETF, which goes by the ticker URA. Uh, and if you take a long-term chart on that, you can see that it went from around $130 all the way down to like levels currently around sub 30, right? It went down into the single digits at one point in time. So maybe it's because it was the unloved child for so long. How do you think you play uranium? Because uranium's a big play up here in Canada. You know, we have some of the world's largest uranium deposits, but it's big down in Southern Africa as well. I remember from my time down there, Namibia in particular had some substantial uranium assets. What's your view on how to play that, that trend? So domestically, it's a bit tougher. I, I don't have any sort of domestic exposure to that. In the offshore world, uh, there's URNM, which is the North Shore Uranium Mining ETF, uh, which we hold. The URA we hold as well, the Global X Uranium ETF. And then as a single company play, uh, we hold Chemico Corporation, which is a uranium mining business. So there are a few more ways to sort of express a view there, aka different stocks to buy. I just haven't picked which ones to buy just yet. And it would be nice to kind of buy on kind of if, if on, on any weakness. Uh, so currently there's around 7.5% exposure, looking to increase to about 10. But uh, for the moment, I haven't made any any new picks. Uh, but URA and URNM are probably my, my two favorite picks in that in that space. PHG, I'll give you an energy thing to go and do some research on, just, you know, given your passion for climate change. So when I was researching Delta today, came across a biofuel company called Gevo, G-E-V-O, I hope I'm saying it right. And they do sustainable okay. aviation fuel. I just thought it was very interesting because oh, wow. I didn't even know such a thing really exists. It's it's basically biofuel. What do they make it from? It's biofuel. So I suppose a whole lot of fertilizer and compost goes in and out comes a plane. No, I'm kidding. But it's some version thereof. <laughs> but here's an, It's generally corn or sugar cane or something. Well, here's an unbelievable fact for you. So Delta says that the amount of sustainable aviation fuel on the market today would cover its operations for one day. That's it. Just one day. Wow. So... Wow. There is a massive need to ramp that stuff up because to your point, you know, regardless of whether people believe the Durban floods are climate change or just, you know, weather cycles, the point is that people are without a doubt investing more and more in these alternative energies, green energies, carbon emissions. Anglo-American released an announcement on Thursday with all the stuff they're doing. Hydrogen fuel cell trucks, they're going to start uh, testing those in their operations. So this stuff is only going to accelerate. There's there's no doubt about it. Rare rare earth minerals. Yeah. Rare earth that minerals. That too. So go go we need, go, be, we need to be buying those. Go check Givo out if you want to read something interesting because I thought that was quite interesting. I, I was looking at that Givo chart, Ghost. If I'm looking at the right one, it, it just falls off a cliff and then like flat lines. But before we even go there. Lots of turbulence. In fact, yeah, no, not before we even go there. I mean, it's just flat lines. Recently, I saw a news article about Amazon investing in an entity that is providing its first fully electric aircraft. Now, that's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's basically a big flying battery, right? 
Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I mean, it's going to have to be unmanned, but can you envisage a world where we actually have a lot of these autonomous drones flying around, fully clean energy on Amazon's balance sheet, delivering your products to your door? I mean, that's fascinating. It goes to the whole buy metals, buy lithium. Petri, do you own any lithium? Do you own the lithium ETF? I mean, that's that's your obvious battery metal play. What else would you be looking at in that battery metal space? Uh, so I do not, actually. So at, the, at present, I don't have any exposure to sort of battery manufacturing other than through diversified miners. But unfortunately, no sort of individual metal exposure to lithium or anything like that. Although I do think lithium is good, cobalt as well. Yeah, I, I haven't made any decisions there yet. There's still a lot of reading to do before. Uh, before I can give you an intelligent answer to that. <laughs> so I own that ETF and I bought it without doing a lot of reading, to be completely honest. It was kind of in the pandemic thematic play. I thought, well, over the next 10 years, we're going to need more batteries. So, you know, in it goes. Um, and that's the beauty of these ETFs. I mean, Pietro, you were talking about one earlier. You know, if you kind of believe in a theme, then it's a little bit naughty, but the ETFs save you a lot of time from trying to go and pick the stock that's going to win, right? I mean, you've got to size your positions properly. You don't go and toss 30% of your portfolio into something you haven't done very detailed work on. But, you know, as a 2% allocation or 3% allocation to a theme, I think it's quite a useful investment tool, these active ETFs. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It does, it does make it a lot easier and it does sort of diversify your risk a whole bunch more than trying to do individual stocks. I think... What's happened is we had a, an era where, you know, these tech stocks did so well, you could just buy Apple or, you know, Facebook or whatever it was. And, you know, the sky's the limit. They just went up, up, up. But that time, I think, is over now. So, you know, the easy, the easy play is really the ETF space because that is, it gives you exposure to an entire sector. Um, it's just you've got to make sure that, like, you know, as you say, Mr. Ghost, it's just you don't want to be overexposed to any one idea because if that idea is wrong, you're going to hurt real bad. Before Mo, I can see Mo is so excited to jump in there, but I have to say one other thing on these ETFs quickly. So I wrote this for Financial Mail this week, so it'll go out at the same time as this podcast. From 2011, when the social media kind of ETF launched and holds a whole lot of social media type stocks, it's actually underperformed the S&P 500 over that sort of 11-year <laughs> period. So and, and most amazing. of that underperformance came in the last two years, I'm sure. Hey? And a lot of it from China. Mean reversion happened real fast. Lots of it from China. So maybe the question there is, you know, is it a contraindicator when you see an ETF listed on a theme? Maybe that's exactly the time not to go into the theme. I, I don't know. But I, I think before we let you go, Pietri, you know, I, I just want to touch on two things. One is the use of ETFs as a placeholder in your portfolio? Is that something that you do? Because it's something I do. Mm -hmm. Is if I haven't done homework, but I, I like the mega theme, I'll chuck an ETF in there. And then once I've done the homework, maybe I'll go and choose some selected stocks. That's the first question. And then the second question is, what's on your radar? You know, what's what's keeping Pietri excited over the next month that you're willing to share with, with our listeners? What are the ideas, whether that's ETF or stock specific? The ETFs are a good placeholder, I think, sort of going down this rabbit hole that you've been in for a while, Mo, which is macro. <laughs> Right. So um, sometimes looking at the sort of bigger picture themes, I don't know, I just find it a, a bit more interesting. You know, I don't know. I spent a lot of years reading just sense articles. And at some point it's like, well, guys, come on. You know, <laughs> I need to. Sorry, ghost. Um, I need to uh, um, I need to sort of start understanding the bigger picture. And this is where the ETFs are very helpful because that helps, you know, position you for bigger picture sort of. More, you're more thinking more like an asset allocator rather than an individual stock picker, if that makes sense. Um, and then what's on the radar is, ironically, 
uh, a couple of sort of individual stocks, right? So when you're looking at a specific uh, theme, you can go downstream and to see, well, okay, if we have higher oil prices because we have too little supply, huge amount of ever-growing demand, you know, who's going to benefit the most? It's probably going to be the drillers and the people, you know, operating oil rigs and that kind of thing because... A lot of those oil rigs sort of run on on daily rental as well, right? You can uh, rent the oil rig, it moses on over to your wherever your well is, and off it goes, it pumps some oil for you, and you pay them a daily rate for that, right? The oil services companies, I think, um, are going to be the real big winners from uh, a sustained higher oil price, because essentially what's going to happen, I think, is we've even seen policy changes already as people saying, well, look, you know, we need to start drilling, we need to start getting uh, oil to market, because the market is imbalanced and there's definitely a shortage. So we've seen already, actually, since the beginning of the year, some f- phenomenal performances on, on some of the stocks. I'll run through some of them now. Uh, so the, the question is now, you know, which combination of these do you buy and how much do you allocate to each? So that's kind of where we're currently stuck and doing a bit of work. All right, so the stocks are Seacore Marine Holdings, Subsea, MMA Offshore Limited, Helix Energy Solutions Group, Drillquip Incorporated, Ocean Engineering International, uh, Transocean Limited, and Valaris Limited. Also, Global Corporation PLC. So this is sort of listed everywhere from New York to Switzerland to uh, the UK. It's kind of spread across the world. There's an Australian one in the mix there as well. You're not alone in this whole difficulty of, you know, caring about climate change, but also wondering what to invest in and investing in these energy sources. It's difficult. And I think uh, what we have to hope is that corporates just keep doing the right thing in terms of becoming more efficient, making the right decisions. Um, And we've seen a lot of that come through. They're certainly feeling the pressure. So eventually the stuff kind of sorts itself out and you just have to invest in what you're comfortable in. I share your view. I think you have to be practical. We'd all love to be running off the sun and and the plants, but uh, at the moment, unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. Uh, look, if I could just add a little something there, at some point, uh, you know, running off the sun and plants and, and whatever is going to be the most efficient way because there's going to be a big enough incentive for companies to go there. And when that time comes, open season, we can invest there all we like, right? Uh, we follow the themes. Uh, we don't necessarily, um, you know, I don't know. It's not, it, it's a bit of a moral sort of question. Like I want to invest and do the best that I possibly can for the clients, but I also want to, um, you know, ensure that my children's children have a world to live in, right? So we, I think as everyday people, um, yes, cool. Now we're investing in oil stocks, right? Because that's where the money is. But um, in the long run, I think what we have to do is our own personal behaviors is stuff that we have to start changing, start being a bit more energy conscious, thinking about your footprint. Yeah, and I think that's happening. I do think that's happening. So, Piachi, thank you for joining us this month. Always an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We'll do this again with you in May, and uh, good luck in the markets. From my side, Piachi, that's been fascinating. We always kind of run out of time when we're trying to pick your brain. But thanks for sharing some of those thoughts and, and ideas with us. And again, we can pick this up next month, same time, same place, uh, when we invite you back to see how some of these themes and ideas are playing out. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 